Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When President Biden took office, he promised a more compassionate approach to immigration after the harsh policies of President Trump, which included family separation. But as Biden's administration struggles to address the needs of migrants at the nation's southern border and faces mounting criticism from Republicans, it's turning to increasingly restrictive asylum policies and is signaling it may revive family detention. We look this hour at what's happening at the border and how federal immigration policy could change. Join us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. In an effort to cope with large numbers of migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border, the Biden administration announced plans last month that it would presume anyone who enters illegally is ineligible for asylum. It would also quickly deport anyone who did not seek protection from another country as they made their way to the U.S. or who did not first make an appointment with border authorities through a new mobile app. Officials have also suggested they may restart family detention. President Biden promised to restore a humane approach to migrants at our nation's borders after the harsh policies of his predecessor. But immigrant rights advocates say these new rules are anything but. We'll look at how they've been affecting migrants at California's southern border. And joining me for that is Deep Sacrum, professor of law at Santa Clara University, where he teaches constitutional and immigration law. Welcome to the program, Deep. Glad to talk with you. Thank you for having me. Taiki Hendricks is also with us, senior editor covering immigration for KQED. Taiki, so glad to have you on, too. It's a pleasure, Mina. So give us a little more detail on Biden's proposal for asylum seekers. So this proposal is um, similar but not the same as as a Trump administration attempt um Basically, the presumption the Biden administration is making, as you say, is if if you pass through another country on your way to the U.S. and you didn't ask for asylum there, then the presumption is that you're not going to be eligible for asylum here if you also didn't make an appointment through a new uh, mobile app that the government has rolled out, the CBP-1 app. If you just cross the border without authorization illegally, Um, you're presumed not to be eligible for asylum. And that's a it's a proposed rule. It's they're in the process of of finalizing it. But um, that is a plan that has, um, I would say, is an effort by the administration to try to um, channel 
the people who are coming to the border into a, a sort of a more orderly system, um, but it's it's getting pretty universal pushback from immigrant advocates and human rights advocates. Well, why is the Biden administration announcing these rules now? Well, I would say there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that we are coming to the end of the government's emergency pandemic public health um uh, state of emergency, right? And uh, when that ends, I think May 11th, um, that will be the end of a, of a policy called Title 42, which used the pandemic as an excuse to essentially uh, push people back, expel people who cross the border without authorization, without giving them um, the the legally mandated asylum screening, an initial asylum screening, and a lot of these people are asylum seekers, but they've been just getting pushed right back. Um, and so that's one reason. They're afraid that when the public health order lifts, there's going to be a lot more people trying to come over. And then the other thing is that we're getting into, you know, another election cycle as we get lean towards a uh, presidential election and congressional elections in next year. And um, I think the administration is worried about political fall, fallout from this. You mentioned that Biden's proposal is getting pretty universal pushback. What is the nature of the pushback? What are some of the biggest concerns? Well, I can say right as we speak, there's a there's a protest going on at the Washington Monument in D.C. from a lot of immigrant advocacy groups, uh, the ACLU and uh, a network called Attention Watch. Um, they feel that you know, basically, asylum is a is something that you know is codified in U.S. law, international law, and if somebody is fleeing persecution, the law says it doesn't matter how you come here; you still are entitled to ask for protection, and it's the same as refugee status, asylum status. And putting these limits on it, uh, you know, they would say is unconstitutional. Deep Kulasekaram, many have talked about how these policies that Biden is proposing, the policies of the Trump administration, marks a significant shift in our understanding of and standards, really, for seeking asylum. Do you agree with that? Well, I think it depends on how you view what Congress has done and how it compares to what the uh, this administration and prior administrations have done. Now, Congress has written laws. This is specifically the 1980 refugee law. Uh, it's now codified in Section 208 of the Immigration and Nationality Act, which, as Taiki just mentioned, provides a legal right for anybody, any non-citizen who finds their way to the United States or to the border to ask for humanitarian relief and humanitarian admission. That same statute also delegates to the Department of Homeland Security the authority to create regulations and rules consistent with uh, with the statute to um, effectuate uh, asylum processes in the United States. So the legal fight is whether this type of new rule is consistent with the statute and consistent with the authority given to administrations. When the Trump administration tried something similar to this in 2019, it was uh, rejected by federal courts. And they found that the Trump administration ruled that denied admission, denied sorry, the possibility of asylum to people if they had not asked for asylum in another country 
before getting to the United States to be uh, contradictory to the statute, and thus they struck it down. And so the question again here will be the same. That is, are the new regulations created by the Biden administration, are they consistent with the uh, with the statute that Congress has written, or are they, as the Trump administration's, uh, inconsistent? If the proposal does move forward, though, Deep, what do you see as the practical effect? I think the practical effect will be very similar to what happened at the uh, during the Trump administration, which is that the possibility of asking for asylum for most people coming to the, the southern border will be greatly diminished uh, for the majority of people who uh, attempt to make that journey. Um, you have two different factors working together. One is the, the requirement that one ask for asylum in another country before you get to the United States. And if you didn't do that, then you're not eligible. Most of the countries from which people would be then uh, trying to ask for asylum would be countries in Central America or um, Mexico. Those are most of those countries do not have fully functioning asylum systems to the extent they have uh, those systems. They are overburdened to a greater extent than even the United States asylum system is burdened. The second requirement, as Taiki uh, laid out, was the use of the CBP1 app, so a web-based application, to set a a time and an appointment to ask for asylum from U.S. authorities. And if you don't do that, again, the presumption is that you will not get asylum. Both of those in concert will ensure that most people actually don't get to ask for asylum. Already, the CBP-1 app, as rolled out, has had significant technical glitches, um, including the fact that it requires people to have have, uh, the technological access, have facility with the technological access, and uh, emerging reports about the glitchiness of the app and its inability to do facial recognition with darker skin tone. So all of these together, I think, will greatly diminish the possibility of asking for asylum. Hmm. We're talking with Deep Kulasekwam, professor of law at Santa Clara University, where he teaches constitutional and immigration law. He's also co-author of the leading immigration law textbook used in U.S. law schools. Taiki Hendricks is also with us, senior editor covering immigration for KQED. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What are your questions about President Biden's proposed asylum rules? Do you agree with Biden's approach or disagree? Tell us why or why not? Perhaps you're a migrant or an immigrant who has sought a path to citizenship. You can share your story by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or giving us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Deep Taiki laid out a couple of the reasons that the Biden administration is proposing these asylum rules, the end of Title 42, political pressures as well. But are we also just seeing a lot more people seeking asylum at the border? There has been a significant rise of people at the border. Now, it's it's a little difficult to determine uh, whether this is a significant rise that will continue um, or whether this is just a, a rebound from the time of the pandemic. Now, during the time of the pandemic at the end of the Trump era, the regulations put in place, including, as Taiki mentioned, the Title 42 regulations, which were essentially using the public health emergency as the pretext to shut down the border, led to uh, diminishing the number of people who could come to the border and ask for humanitarian admission to nearly zero. Um, Now, given that that is going to go away on May 11th, the United States is ending the uh, the national emergency uh, based on uh, the COVID pandemic. So uh, the prediction is 
that when that goes away, that the numbers of people coming to the border will significantly increase. It is true that if you look at the last few months, um, the number of encounters at the border has risen to historic highs. It has gotten to the low 200,000 per month. The last time it was that high was in, I believe, January of 2000. So nearly uh, 20 years ago, 23 years ago. Just to jump in, I think the... um the Biden administration, uh, we're seeing a, a, a drop in the last couple of months with with encounters at the border. Um, so, it, you know, what's what's causing that? Is it the use of the CBP-1 app? It's not clear, but there has been a drop to about 125,000, 130,000 in the last couple months. And uh, as Deep was talking about in terms of just the dramatic increase that happened at the end of fiscal year 2022 in terms of apprehensions, 2.3 million there. The backlog of asylum cases pending in U.S. immigration courts, as I understand it, is well above 800,000. So just a lot to contend with. Historically, a lot. And and I mean, just to put it also in context and and not to, um, to contradict anything that Deep is saying, but um, you know, there is, I mean, we're in a kind of a global migration crisis in a way with between war and instability, um, climate crises, uh, you know, repressive states. I mean, uh, Nicaraguans, there's tons of Nicaraguans who are seeking asylum in Costa Rica, Venezuelans in Colombia. You know, we're seeing this around the world. So that's a, a little bit of a bigger context for what we're seeing at the U.S. border. We're talking, we're talking with KQED's Taiki Hendricks and also with Santa Clara University's Deep Kula Sekaram. And with you, our listeners, we'll have more after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about a proposal for new policies for asylum seekers and other migrants being proposed by the Biden administration. Taiki Hendricks is with us, senior editor covering immigration for KQED, as well as Deep Gula Sakram, professor of law at Santa Clara University, where he teaches constitutional and immigration law. And joining us now is Kate Morrissey, a reporter for the San Diego Union Tribune. Morrissey covers the border and immigration. Kate, so glad to have you. 
Hi, thanks for having me. So as Taiki was saying, the asylum rules are in a public comment period, but the mobile app has been in place for a couple of months. Can you tell us what you've seen at the border in terms of how that's been working? Sure. Um, I was there the the first morning that it rolled out, actually. And, um, you know, since then, it's it's just been this um, sort of constant, uh, I guess, source of anxiety for asylum seekers in Tijuana, which is is the part of the border that I'm most familiar with. Um, Every morning, uh, the app opens up new appointments for the day two weeks from that day. It doesn't allow any appointments further out than that. And so every morning, uh, it used to be at 6 a.m. Pacific time. Now they've moved it to 8 a.m. Pacific time. So it's a little later. Um, but you still see folks getting up hours in advance every morning so that they can have their phones ready. And and their fingers at this point have learned every single button Uh, by heart that they need to push to get to that screen to be waiting for when the appointments get released. And then it's this sort of mad dash of toggling the app to see if you're going to be one of the people who gets one of the 200 appointments released here for the the San Diego Tijuana port of entry. Um, And then if you don't get it, then you have to wait until the next morning to try again. And there's not really any um, queuing as far as, oh, well, this person has been trying for two weeks to get an appointment and this person just started yesterday, right? Like it, it, it does not matter how long you've been waiting. Everybody is trying at the same time together. Um, we see the app throwing a lot of different, very strange errors that don't really make sense. Um, you see error messages that have a bunch of HTML code in them. So it doesn't look like it's necessarily uh, polished from a development perspective. Um, and it, it's, uh, as, as Deep was discussing earlier, we do see people particularly with, um, darker skin who are struggling to get the, the photo to work correctly. Um, you see people, if, if they do manage to get to the photo part of the application process before it becomes, completely saturated with people waiting, they go running to any source of light, a window. Um, some shelters have set up these bright construction lights for people uh, to try and have enough light on their face to get that photo uh, facial recognition to to accept their their uh, photo. Mm-hmm. And can, then can I, can I ask a question? Is it the case that you don't just make one appointment for your whole family or your whole group that you have to get individual appointments. And sometimes you can get two, but you're just like mom and dad and two kids and you can't get four slots or something. Is that, so that accurate? It's it's sort of in flux right now. Um, we were seeing at the beginning that, that uh, you know, it, so you set up sort of your profile where you're trying to get an appointment and anyone who's going to be on your appointment has to have their photo taken, has to have all of their information entered. And so at the beginning, you know, we were seeing families getting appointments and then that sort of stopped. And and the people who were successful in getting appointments were individuals traveling by themselves. And so then families started to say, well, should we try for individual appointments or appointments with smaller groups of us because we're not getting in? Um, and then uh, more recently, I've started to hear that that people, at least uh, partners, that, like sets of two people, are are getting appointments. But it's not clear yet what's happening with some of the bigger 
families. So it's, you know, the, the app updates frequently. And every time there's an update, it sort of changes the rules of the game and how things are functioning. And, and some things get a little better and some things get a little worse. And yes. so we're all learning every day uh, what is what is the latest with the app and, and how it works. And, and people start WhatsApping each other. Oh, this is the secret for, for right now. And it, it sort of spreads around the whole community. But what you're basically describing is that it sounds like this app is is magnifying some significant inequities, whether or not you're applying as an individual or as a family. Also, it sounds like just in terms of your access to bright lights, reliable internet, and so on. Can you talk a little bit about what you've noticed around that? Absolutely. Um, I think that was especially clear even, you know, on the first day when people went in, um, I was standing at the at the port of entry watching who had gotten appointments and the majority of them were were white europeans uh most of them seemed to be russian speakers um and so you know when you talk what, like what i keep hearing from from people is that you have to have a pretty solid smartphone in order to make it work you have to have a new uh, iPhone, you have to have a really high quality Android phone in order to get the app to work. You have to have good access to internet. And so, you know, when we're talking about people who are fleeing for their lives, especially if they've had to make, you know, a significant journey to get to Tijuana, the likelihood that their phone's been stolen is very high. And they may be working with, you know, what they've been able to scrounge up since then. Somebody gifted them an old phone. Maybe they were able to get a little bit of money to buy something that they can use just to send messages to their family. Um, but so there, there is definitely a, a socioeconomic disparity in this app because the, the asylum seekers who have access to the money to be able to have nice phones or replace a nice phone if their phone gets taken from them are, are the people coming from, you know, wealthier countries or the people coming from wealthier situations, um, which is, um, in this case, you know, Russians and, and other folks fleeing, fleeing European countries. And so, again, you see uh, indigenous asylum seekers, black asylum seekers, asylum seekers from uh, countries that don't have these resources or from situations where they've, you know, had to pass through the jungle and, and all of these other places where they've, they've spent every penny that they've had. Uh, not being able to get in because they don't have the technology to do so. Again, Kate Morrissey is immigration reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Listeners, you can join the conversation by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or by calling us at 866-733-6786. Your questions about some of the proposals uh, with regard to asylum seekers, but also about this mobile app that Kate is just describing and what it's creating in terms of the situation at the border. Broadly, how you feel about how the administration is approaching immigration. This listener writes, what is the status of accepting refugees from Afghanistan and Ukraine? Are there different standards for those countries? And how are those migrants getting here? Do they go through the border? Deep, do you have some insight for this listener? Yeah, so just to be clear, you know, we use these terms and sometimes people use them interchangeably. Yes. Refugee and yes. asylum. It is worth sort of being very clear. A ref, the standard for qualifying as either a refugee or an asylee is the same. That is, you have to uh, face persecution or have a credible fear of, of persecution on on some enumerated bases. 
But the difference really has to do with location. So uh, a refugee is somebody who applies in another country. They're deemed a refugee under the by the UN. Uh, and then through a UN process, they are sent to various co uh, countries that accept uh, refugees. One thing that one can say about the Biden administration that is different than the Trump administration is that Biden has increased the number of refugees that the United States is taking and has uh, shown a commitment to increasing the numbers of, for example, Afghanistan refugees, Ukrainian refugees, et cetera, that the United States takes. Asylum is the process by which a migrant who shows up at the United States border or inside the United States asks for humanitarian protection. So it is more likely to be people coming from contiguous nations or people who can get their way into Mexico uh, and then the U.S. border or alternative to, uh, alternatively to Canada and then the U.S. border at Canada. Um, and so we want to think about those two as different. I don't know if that is fully responsive to the question, um, but certainly worth knowing the difference. Well, the people who are using the app right now, Kate, are people who are seeking asylum and also uh, people who are asking for exemptions from Title 42. I I'm curious if they do get that appointment, right, what happens after that? Can you give us some insight? And whether or not that is a process that's being handled efficiently as well, whether the infrastructure, especially at the Mexico-San Isidro border, is intact and robust. So the, the port of entry that we have at the San Diego-Tijuana border is actually one of the busiest ports of entry in the world. Um, it competes with a couple, I think there's maybe two other ports of entry globally that some years they're on top, some years we're on top. But we just in terms of... of um, people moving, people coming, you know, across the border to work in either direction, people going to visit family in either direction or go shopping or um, all of the sort of commercial goods that come across our border here. So just to give you a sense of like the size of the port of entry here. So there, there is, um, I would say, a, a lot of capacity at our particular port of entry in terms of processing asylum seekers. Um, there have actually been lawsuits sort of calling into question when the when the port of entry says it doesn't have enough capacity. And um, there, there's been some uh, whistleblowers sort of around the government saying it doesn't have capacity when it actually does. Um, so just as a little bit of background context, but um, in terms of what happens to them next. So they get the appointment, um, they show up at the Mexico side of the port of entry, uh, Mexican immigration officials escort them to US Customs and Border Protection officials at the borderline. They're then taken into a private processing area. They spend most of the day there, hours and hours waiting for their group to all get processed. They go through uh, background checks. I was told the other day that they even do like a mouth swab as part of that background check. Um, they go through uh, different questioning about, about why they're there. Um, and then the immigration officials determine whether uh, this person will be uh, released, uh, which in, in immigration language is called parole, um, or whether that person will be uh, detained while they're um, then given the next step in their, their immigration process, which would be uh, going to immigration court. Um, and so most of the people who have appointments we see are getting released we have a shelter here on the San Diego side of the border that receives most of those folks and then helps them uh, connect with their loved ones, family members around the country uh, to get their tickets to travel either by bus or by plane 
to their final destinations around the country. Most most people don't end up staying here locally in San Diego, uh, but we do have a pretty robust infrastructure now for helping people make that step if they are released from immigration custody. Hmm. Well, this listener asks, Kate, is there a way that someone can help a migrant get an appointment on the app? Could I do this remotely to help someone or does the migrant need to bring the phone with them? From my understanding, it has to be done on done by the person who is is having the appointment and, and they have to have the proof of the appointment on their phone when they show up to the border. Um, you'll see groups of them sort of meeting together in different shelter spaces every morning to sort of help each other like, no, tap that, try this, hold it this way. Um, as they're as they're trying to get their appointments, but it would be difficult, if not impossible, I think, to provide remote help for that. Um, certainly, looking into ways to provide uh, border shelters with uh, cell phones that could be reformatted and used for folks who don't have the right cell phones, um, or reinforcing the internet capacity of some of the shelters. Like some of the shelters have decent internet, and some of the shelters uh, do not. You know, and so reinforcing that Wi-Fi capacity, especially at the larger shelters that are serving, you know, fifteen hundred migrants, uh, could be a way to to help if that's an interest. Take you mentioned Nicaragua, Venezuela earlier. The U.S. has carved out a path for citizens of those countries, as well as Haiti and Cuba, called humanitarian parole, which you alluded to. Can you just talk about what that is, why these specific countries are being singled out? Just give us a little bit more sure. information about yeah. that. <clears throat> and one of the earlier listeners was asking, like, what's the difference between Ukrainians and, and say, Central Americans? And so, yes, the government, the U.S. government has um, created a <clears throat> a humanitarian parole program that's a presumption uh, you don't have to go through um a, an, a, an asylum screening uh we're saying you know we know there's a war in your country in ukraine and so we're going to let you come and stay in this country for two two years you can get a work permit so there's a program like that for ukrainians um there are humanitarian parole is available for Afghans. I think there's been a lot more hurdles for them. And then um, just recently, the Biden administration said, okay, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, Haiti, as you mentioned, are all countries where, um, you know, there's either obvious repression, the government is really fractured, uh, and we don't have the diplomatic relations to deport people or send them back to those countries. And so, one way to take this pressure off of these ports of entry and off the border is to say, uh, we're going to accept 30,000 people a year, I mean, 30,000 people a month from those four countries on a humanitarian parole. And so they don't even have to come to the port of entry. They can make an appointment. They could fly here. Uh, and I believe that about 35,000, 40,000 uh, have come from those four countries that you mentioned in this hemisphere just in the last couple of months. Um, so that's a little different. If they wanted to stay here permanently, they could make a claim for asylum, and then that's a path to a green card and, and citizenship if they want it. Um, but they, you know, this this avoids the congestion at the border and the congestion in the immigration courts uh, in in the first instance. So, Deep, are we settled that the types of things that, that people in Haiti, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and so on are facing um, are grounds for asylum? 
There are other, of course, reasons that people are coming to the border now, including just economic collapse, climate change-related issues. Are we also agreed or said that that is a valid reason for asylum at this point? But I think that's the the heart of the problem. The asylum law uh, and refugee law, but neither of them recognize running from just economic deprivation as a ground for seeking humanitarian admission into the United States. The the grounds for seeking uh, asylum are if you're facing persecution on the basis of, let's say, your race, your religion, your political opinion. Um, or membership in a particular group that subjects you to persecution. Now, notice that none of the things that I just mentioned uh, talk about economic distress. The the reality is that people run for lots of reasons, uh, including economic deprivation, including uh, running from failed states, cartel activity, et cetera, and increasingly from failed states in Central America or close to failed states where cartels control a significant portion of everyday life. Um, And the problem that many asylum seekers face, especially from South and Central America, is it's very hard for them to um, cabin or frame their claims within the, the strictures of the law. Uh, and I think the the response by the United States government and from people who are opposed to humanitarian mission is to say, well, these people are just coming for economic reasons and not for anything else. And on that basis, deny them. Do you think that ne- we're coming up on a break, but do you think that needs to be changed? Do you think the definition needs to be changed deep? I think at the very least, we need to understand that people, there's not just one way of categorizing people and that people run from from disasters for many reasons. Economic, the fact that somebody might be running in part for economic deprivation does not mean that they're not also running from cartel activity, gender motivated violence, and all the things that should make out for an asylum claim. Again, we're talking with Deep Kulasekram, professor of law at Santa Clara University, Taiki Hendricks, senior editor covering immigration for KQED, and immigration reporter Kate Morrissey with the San Diego Union Tribune. And we're talking with you, our listeners. I see your comments, and we'll get to them after the break. But also, you can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786 and by emailing forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, we're at KQED Forum. Tell us your questions about Biden's approach to immigration, if you have a migration story that you want to share, and uh, what strikes you as fair or unfair about our current system for immigration. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Seeking asylum will be harder under new rules proposed by the Biden administration. 
And while Joe Biden campaigned on a compassionate approach to immigration, rising numbers of migrants at the border are putting pressure on his administration, which has also signaled that it could revive a family detention policy. We're talking about the situation with Deep Gulasekharam, professor of law at Santa Clara University, where he also teaches on immigration law. Taiki Hendricks of KQED, our senior editor who covers immigration. Kate Morrissey, immigration reporter at the San Diego Union-Tribune. And you, our listeners, are sharing your thoughts and questions. I do, Taiki, before I get to those, want to ask you about what the Biden administration is signaling with regard to reviving the family detention policy. According to the New York Times, they are strongly looking into this. But what can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, um, there, you know, there are families coming to the border, parents with children, um, and uh, in increasing numbers. And uh, it was really back under the Obama administration almost a decade ago that family immigration detention got expanded. This is ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, essentially jails, like secure locked facilities uh, for parents with children. And and most recently, there were about three of them around the country. Um, they were challenged in court under Obama and under Trump, and um, and there's a, a a legal settlement that covers how kids in immigration custody are to be treated, and it includes kids who are with their parents as well as unaccompanied kids. And the Los Angeles-based federal judge Dolly G, who who oversees that settlement agreement, has said, "Look, it's not good to have kids." In custody, the you know the presumption should be to get them out to you know a home environment as soon as possible. If you have to do it, you can't hold them there for more than twenty days. And when Biden came in, he he you know he campaigned and he said like family detention is wrong. And March of twenty twenty one, you know he he ended family detention. So to see that um, being contemplated as a as a potential um, avenue is. It's a reversal from where he was, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. And it also raises questions about how are you actually going to do this um, from a legal standpoint? Well, my understanding is that senior White House and Homeland Security officials have had several meetings about ways to reinstate the family detention policy, what that would require. And I guess with this 20-day window that's required under a legal settlement, do you think the Biden administration, if it were to do this, would be able to follow that 20-day requirement? Well, they would get a lot of legal pressure in the form of, you know, ACLU lawsuits and so forth. I guess, I mean, it depends on capacity. There's, you know, hundreds of thousands of folks in families who are coming to the border and probably just a couple thousand beds would would be available. I don't know, you know, what they are building up in terms of of potential capacity, um, you know. But f- there are alternatives too, um, where if you uh, give somebody a, a date to show up in court and and some maybe some social work interventions or legal orientations to help you figure out and navigate this country and this system, um, people have, you know, that's that has had very good. Um, track record for for getting people to appear. So why you would need this is is also a question mark. Well, well, Deep, proponents of family detention have argued that it would deter migrant families from making the trip to the southern border. Uh, 
what are your thoughts on that argument and also your thoughts on the family detention policy being revived? So as a general matter, I think that any border uh, control strategy premised on detention is doomed to fail. And our own history has taught us that. One thing that migrants already know about through migrant networks is that the trip up through Mexico uh, on trains or in caravans is extremely dangerous. You're subject to predatory behavior by cartels and other uh, other people who would do so. If you attempt to make the border crossing in San Diego or uh, in Arizona or Texas, it's extremely dangerous. People know that there is risk of death in making that crossing. Yet people do it. People do it because they're running from uh, situations that are untenable, and nobody wants to run with babies or children or entire family units, yet people do it anyway. I think so. I think the idea that um, getting to the border means that you will be in detention for some amount of time isn't going to actually change people's behavior in any significant way. And so if that's the purpose, I think that it's likely to fail. Now, there may be other reasons, including sort of just being able to control what's happening at the border, um, maybe the alternatives to detention arguably are, are not as effective, but I don't see any evidence that the alternatives to detention are not effective and somehow holding a family for 20 days is going to make any significant difference in the numbers of people coming. I have a question for Deep. There, I think back under Obama in 2015, there was a judge who ruled that like detaining migrants and family detention for the purpose of deterring future immigration was was illegal. And where does that stand now? I mean, the, the deterrent factor maybe could be off the table for legal reasons. Yeah. So, you know, I think most of the time when you see litigation underneath, as you referenced, the the Flores Agreement, it's named for a 1997 agreement during the Clinton administration regarding the, the holding of, of minors in, in immigration custody. There's certain restrictions within that and certain ways in which uh, the facilities have to be structured. So most of the litigation centers around whether the conditions within those uh, those places in which children might be held meet the standards of uh, underneath the Flores Agreement, as you mentioned, Judge Dolly G is in charge of making that determination. It is also, and there have been rulings, as you mentioned, that say that if all you're trying to do is create terror, to create um, some form of, of feeling in the people coming, then that per se is an illeg- illegitimate use of the detention system. But that's not usually uh, in defending this type of detention uh, and use of of, uh, of immigration enforcement at the border. That's usually not the only reason proffered, unless, of course, you're Jeff Sessions during the Trump administration, in which you are uh, forthrightly saying that the immigration policy in the United States and, and border policy is cruelty, and the point is to deter. But very few people make that claim. Hmm. Well, this is Snow Rights. I'm curious about what the border port of entry is like in states like Texas and Arizona, which seem more hostile to migrant issues or have used it as a political tool. Is the California border more hospitable? Kate, what do you think? Well, I would say the different parts of the border just sort of geographically are are quite different. And so the experience even from that is, is going to be pretty different. Um, you know, Along the Texas border, there's there's a the river that is sort of the borderline um, here in the San Diego region. We don't have that, but what we do have here and and have had since the 90s is a lot more 
border infrastructure. And when you think of border barriers, border walls, um, there's a significant uh, layer of, or length of the border stretching from the ocean to the mountains in the San Diego area that has it, that has two uh, layers of, of wall. Um, and though, you know, the first layer went up in the nineties, the second one up in the early two thousands and um, under the Trump administration, they were, they were replaced with taller versions. Um, and so just the, I think the act of, of getting across is a different experience in each place uh, because of that um, here in San Diego, for example, you see folks, uh, tending to go up into the mountains where there there aren't the walls um, a lot more just because then they don't have to climb the wall. We do see people uh, falling from these 30-foot walls and dying uh, now that they are so tall. Um, in, in Texas, again, they have to go through the river, and so that's a little bit of a different experience. You do see, um, you know, the Texas politicians uh, setting up, like, National Guard and, and other uh, sort of law enforcement efforts at the state level um, to try to be on the northern bank of that river or or in the area in order to make arrests when people are crossing the border. There's a lot of questions about the legality of that. Immigration is supposed to be a federal, federally handled thing and not a state handled thing. Um, but we do, you know, see it just in terms of how the state responds, I would say, you know, Texas is 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 doing a lot more sort of in that vein, whereas California has invested um, in the last several years in, in what I was describing, this, this shelter infrastructure in order to receive people who are released from immigration custody and, and help them get to their final destinations. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty big difference. Well, let me go to caller Paul in San Leandro. Hi, Paul, you're on. Good morning. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that, uh, that my uh, question or comment is relevant to this particular conversation. This is a conversation we need to be having, certainly. What is being done? Um, how are we interacting down there um, with, uh, you know, Bukele or Ortega or Maduro or uh, Jimmy Morales, who was there? You know, are we because they're coming for a reason. And I know that reason is multifaceted. Uh, do, are, are we making inroads and efforts, um, you know, to help stabilize? Uh, the the mm-hmm. uh, countries in Central America and Latin America. That might not be an appropriate question for this forum. No, I think but it I is an appropriate. Coming for a reason. Well, well, let me just. I think what you're saying also underscores what uh, another listener is saying here. Matthew, who writes, I remember an initiative under Obama to invest in civil society in source countries like. Honduras and El Salvador. What is the current policy with regard to creating more livable societies in the source countries? And Deep, could you talk about that a little bit? There has been an effort uh, by President Biden. They've asked for money to help create more stable uh, regions to try to stop migration from some of, quote unquote, these source countries. You know, how how viable is that a solution, uh, especially in terms of what the Biden administration is trying to address this coming year. Sure. In fact, your caller, I think, has um, you know hit the nail on the head, so to speak. This is the heart of the issue. That is that ultimately migration concerns of the United States are not going to be unilaterally solved by enforcement methods at the United States border. And that ultimately this is going to take a multinational effort 
specifically in those sending countries. Uh, at the beginning of the Biden administration's uh, administration, one of the things that the vice president was tasked with, it's a nearly impossible task, was to go down to Central American countries and to help build up uh, the regional framework so, so as to stem the need for out-migration. But ultimately, without that strengthening of those governments so that they are no longer controlled by cartels, um, no longer failed states or close to failed states, there will be a push to migrate. And that push to migrate is not going to be solved by tinkering around the edges with increased detention or increased border um, enforcement resources because people will come. These situations are untenable. And ultimately, migration is a global phenomenon. It has happened since the dawn of millennia, since the dawn of humankind. Uh, and to believe that any one country can solve the problem is wishful thinking. We're talking about what we're learning about Biden's approach to immigration. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Tom in Santa Clara. Hi, Tom. You're on. Hi. Um, there was a comment earlier uh, about the um, recent, I think it was basically the recent spikes in the last couple of years of immigration are due to you know increased demand, so to speak, at the source countries. And I, I don't know that I've seen any evidence to that effect. Um, I think the source countries are, are still experiencing major problems. There's no question about that. But I think the increased immigration is largely due to change in American policies. So if you look at the last six or eight years under Trump for the first four years, there was obviously a crash or crash down. Um, a crackdown? You know, crackdown, that's the word I'm thinking of, yes. And so um, that deterred a lot of illegal immigration. And under Biden administration, you know, this first month in the office, he said, hey, borders open. And um, that's encouraged, you know, these five million or so illegal crossings in the last two years. So I think a lot of what's going on now is policy-driven by the United States. Hmm. So we shouldn't be spending mixed messages. Um, And it's not to anyone's advantage to come to this country illegally. Tom, thanks. Let me just uh, ask deep. Is that true? Is what Tom's saying true? Yeah, I think, you know, I would just say that I'm not sure that uh, that the premise of the question is quite right. Um, both parts of it, the, the second part being that the policy now is is come to the border, it's open borders. I don't think anybody has said that, certainly not what United States law says, and certainly not what the enforcement policies of the Biden administration portray. Um, it is true that at the height of the pandemic, the Trump administration got the border encounters to be very, very low but did so only under uh, the use of emergency authorities under the guise of pandemic-related restrictions. But taking away that, the number of people coming to the border under Trump was not significantly different from uh, what came before during the Obama administration and mostly attributable to uh, the the conditions as they change in several countries. A recent example is to look at the number of Venezuelans who came to the United States border in late 2022 um, as a result of policies in Venezuela and what was happening in the country at that time. Now those numbers from Venezuela are slowly receding, not, not completely. So I do think that, you know, while it may not be a one-to-one correlation, as the caller points out, one can certainly look at uh, what's happening in those countries as uh, as one causative, significant causative factor to, as to what happens at the border. Kate, we hear a lot that uh, Biden's proposed changes, his approach to administration is actually 
very similar to the Trump administration's view and philosophy as well, that they're comparable, that they're similar. And as somebody who has been at the border for both administrations now, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that uh, on that criticism of, of Biden from some immigrant advocates. Yeah, I, I don't think that what has actually been in practice at the border has been that different under the Trump and Biden administrations. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a difference in rhetoric from the White House, perhaps, but but the actual um, what is happening, the policies that the government is using have not changed much. Um, we have seen this normalization of this idea that migrants should wait in northern Mexico and that, that that northern Mexico is sort of like this waiting room where migrants should stay until uh, they are processed for asylum or or maybe never processed for asylum. There's sort of this indefinite quality about that waiting room and that that limbo space. And we see the Biden administration making choices in in that same mentality, just just as the Trump administration did. And I think these new announcements, um, reviving policies that were were under the Trump administration, just sort of underscore that. But even even from the beginning of the Biden administration, we were seeing choices. Um, for example, uh, at, at the beginning of the Biden administration. There was a time when Mexico said, we're not going to receive Title 42 expulsions of families with children under the age of seven to one particular region of the border because it is so dangerous there. We cannot guarantee their safety. Hmm. And so the Biden administration's solution was to put those families on planes to San Diego and then expel them to Tijuana, to a city they had never been to. And... And in some cases, when, once they were doing that, then they started actually sending those expulsion planes to southern Mexico, to Tapachula, and then Mexico was expelling them to Guatemala. Hmm. So we've seen this throughout the entire administration. Well, people have a chance to weigh in, Taiki, right on Biden's approach, at least these proposals around asylum. Can you tell us when that public comment period ends? Sure. This is with regard to the to the rule that you would have to ask for asylum in another country. So the public comment period goes through uh, March 27th, and people can weigh in with the federal government on, on that policy. Taiki Hendricks of KQED, thank you. Deep Gula Sacrum of Santa Clara University, thank you. And Kate Morrissey of the San Diego Union Tribune, also thank you, listeners. And Grace Wan and Rachel Vasquez for producing today's segment of Forum. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? 
You'll have to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.